from Sydney Media in Melbourne. You're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike, a podcast all about neurodiversity. Hi there, you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike. You're with Julia, Sarah, and we are going to be discussing a lot of things. Um, Sarah is going to be discussing... um, Yep, I'll be talking about, today I'll be talking about women and diagnoses and whether or not the fact that women receive diagnoses later can have an impact on what funding they receive and treatment. We'll also be discussing um, whether or not you should um, disclose any diagnoses that you may have um, at university. Um, So we have a a Facebook page, um, which is Great Minds on Sin, so www.facebook.com forward slash Great Minds on Sin. We share a lot of great stuff throughout the week, um, including former podcasts. Um, but first, we're going to go to a segment. Hi there, I'm Sarah, and today I'm going to be discussing funding-related issues with women who have autism. It is a fact that girls are diagnosed less than boys, and that has been placed at a ratio of approximately... Um, so girls receive, sorry, it's sorry, it's the fact that girls are diagnosed later than boys and it is speculated also that girls are underdiagnosed. So girls typically receive their diagnoses at ages nine to 10. I think the average from recent research was nine and a half years is being the average age of a girl to receive a diagnosis. While boys, on the other hand, are diagnosed on average between the ages of six and seven. And while there are various reasons for this, and one of the reasons is possibly that girls display less overt symptoms, they can be more passive than boys, or boys could be more aggressive or disruptive. And if you think about this in terms of a classroom, if a girl is passive and shy, that behaviour might... won't be a problem for the teacher and therefore could go unnoticed. Well, if a boy is more overt with aggressive or disruptive behaviours, then, of course, that is something that a teacher might bring up with parents. So that is one reason why there could be a tendency to diagnose girls later than boys. Additionally, though, what this means is that if girls are being diagnosed later, this means that they have less ability to access funding. Under the current Medicare system... There is $12,000 available for children who receive their diagnosis between the ages of zero and six. So if you think about it, while some many people won't be in this bracket, boys included, if girls are di- being diagnosed later, then this it, it's possible that this system of funding is disproportionately excluding girls from access to services, which they will need in order to progress academically and socially. Uh, currently, after the age of six, the funding that is available is, I guess, healthcare, healthcare plans and various treatment plans, which give a person access to a certain number of sessions to, with healthcare professionals. However, they're not... However, these, session, these are rebates towards sessions, so as a result, there is still a large out-of-pocket expense. So in this sense, what, uh, if, the kid, if, the, if a child receives their diagnosis, uh, say, later on in primary school or as an, ad- as an, adult, ad- sorry, or as an adolescent, then they could be missing out 
on a large portion of funding and therefore access to, the, to services. Not having appropriate funding could lead to further problems such as the inability to develop the social and academic skills that are required as students progress through school and these and and the and the social and academic situations therein become more demanding if students are un, if students and children are unable to keep up in these areas or if they're left behind then this could further lead to them missing out on life chances or opportunities in life such as employment or developing social skills that allow them to create to have to create bonds with people to to have friends and to be involved in their communities so not only does this highlight how a gap may be created for people uh, for neurodiverse people or people on the autism spectrum uh, later in life with the opportunities that are available to them this also shows that maybe we do need to have greater funding opportunities for services for adolescents or children above six uh, who have autism or I guess any neurological disorder. And it's not that we should take funding away from children because I believe that is very important. But if it is important for people to develop as teenagers, as children and to develop academic and social skills that will help them later in life, then we also need a greater focus on funding that is available to them at the moment. Um, Sarah, thank you very much for listening to my segment on women with autism and the implications of receiving a diagnosis later. Hi, my name is Christian, and I want to talk about a pattern I've noticed fairly recently in neurodiversity as it regards to its representation in television, that there seems to be an awful lot of, well, if you had to pick one job, according to TV, that uh, a neurodiverse person will be most likely to obtain and to excel in, it, uh, that definitely seems to be the role of some kind of investigator, whether that's with the CIA, Carrie Matheson, uh, who are characterized by Polo in the TV show Homeland, where that's Will Graham, who, well, his his psychology is very complex, but he's, he's definitely neurodiverse, and he has a, a normal amount of empathy. He's, a, he's an emotional sponge, which, unfortunately for him, that makes him very, very useful as a support to homicide detectives, because that incredible amount of empathy extends to serial killers, which is most useful for the FBI. I will also be talking briefly about shows like The Bridge and Scorpion and Bones, which I haven't really seen much of, but it kind of just uh, is, is more examples of, and Sherlock 2, of course, but there's definitely quite a few female neurodiverse characters who work as investigators, and, and, and of course most as it tends to be with really the neurodiversity movement, some people see it as synonymous with autism rights, and um, it, there's, there's no denying um, autism community really does dominate the, that, that conversation, but there's, there's also uh, Carrie Matheson having bipolar and a few few others, I'm sure, which I can't really think of at the moment. But there is definitely no denying that writers seem to find it most easy to, to show the to show the usefulness, 
the the validity and the, uh, the, the 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 talented, the really really capable side of someone who's neurodiverse in an investigator role. And I I, I suppose this this makes sense in some ways because uh, these these features I'm about to list are certainly not unique to the role to the job of an, an investigator, but they definitely are present. You you need to have very specific sets of skills. You need to basically live be able to live a very unbalanced lifestyle. You need to devote hours to minute research to to to, to stakeouts to you, you you have to um particularly as, as as we look at well really as, as we look at all of them because they they all deal with they all deal with deaths and tragedies and people who are grieving and they they have to approach this in a way that's intellectual and they have to ask the hard questions they have to get the right information out out of the really really distressed people that they are that they are talking to and there's a curious line in the first episode of the bridge where she is she's being asked to to question someone who a man who's who's uh, his partner has just died who's, who's, who's just been killed and after following the conversation could tell that he, he's, he's really frustrated it's very difficult not to frustrate someone like that when you're asking them such such hardline questions but which you have to do and she says i I'm, I'm sorry if i don't i didn't show an adequate amount of empathy i mean the, the reason why in an interview brian for the creative hannibal stated that Will Graham couldn't be autistic, despite there being a reference to autism. It's because he has a lot of empathy. And there this, this tends to be this, particularly with writers who are writing sort of clearly neurodiverse characters, to not really understand the sort of difference between communication of feelings and the feeling of feelings. There's different types of emotional intelligence there's there's a difference between being able to understand what someone else is feeling due to their situation and to be able to feel it yourself. And uh, there's a difference between that and, and being able to communicate that you know what the other person is feeling or being able to re- respond to it in the way that people would ex- people would expect. There's, I mean, I mean, certainly with Sherlock, there is that great part where he is having to work against Moriarty to to save um, his innocent victims, often children, from terrible fate, and he doesn't really seem to be reacting to the to the stress of the situation in the in in the usual way, in the way that uh, John Watson would expect. And he comments on that, and uh, Sherlock gives what I what I guess is the usual sort of well, there are plenty of people dying and suffering, cry by their bedside, see how that. That helps. But he also says that, well, no, he does care. He's showing he cares by putting all of his energy into help actually doing something productive to help them. It's the ability to delay one's emotional response and have it when you can afford to have it, not when you need to focus on getting the job done to practically help people out. That is certainly something that's required by a detective job, but it it, it is also required in the medical profession, in, in the legal profession, in emergency services, in in teaching, in in basically in any 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 sort of environment where you work with other people. It's, it's it can be a useful skill. So yes, yeah, so it is a curious trend. It looks like it is the start of a of a wider trend, showing that there are certain areas where being neurodiverse. There are there are many quite a few areas where being neurodiverse is uh, definitely an asset. Being an investigator is one of them. 
I would love then oh, being a mathematician is another one being a computer programmer is is another I would I would love to see the others being shown I I, I know the f- format of it's this is television okay the format of a crime show is is probably the most convenient format to do that and this is probably a wider criticism of of di- media diversity in general but it really I don't think it's too much to ask for us to for us to branch out there's there's, there's nothing wrong with seeing so many but it does it, it, it is otherworldly this sort of investigator crime tv show it's it can be glamorized it can it can not really drive it home that these these people can actually take on jobs that we interact with every day you don't often come across a homicide investigator because that's quite an exceptional circumstance so i guess if i had a recommendation to the film industry it would be in another way once again to actually diversify but certainly on the right track just needs to continue down that track a fair way further thank you very much for listening to me my name is christian enjoy the rest of your episode hey there you're listening to julia and And sarah and we're going to be talking more about gender and um neurodiversity because it's a really fun topic and it's Mm -hmm. pretty topical right now um, yep. So, as you might hear from our voices, we are not men. No, we're not men. We are women. I know. Crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and as neurodiverse um, women, like, it's, it's, it's a bit of a... <laughs> we have the odd one out feel a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, it can be a bit of a sausage fest out there. Yeah. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you are, definitely. I mean, that's what it is. It, it can be a little bit strange because you can, you can, you know, if you are ever at an event, because, like, we're both involved. Mm. Um, in the autism spectrum disorder community. Yeah. And there is a noticeable number of guys there. Yeah. <laughs> How should I put that? Um you don't often see as many girls as guys. Yeah, it's always kind of like, oh, yes, another girl. Yes. Yep, and pretty much. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, once you find another girl, it's just like, yay. There's there's definitely a, like, new diverse sisterhood thing going on. Mm, definitely. Um, anyway, so... Did the lights just go out outside? Yeah, that happens all the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, the, the lights in the studio just turned off. Um, anyway, so... Um, I guess what we're going to be discussing is sort of like if if you're if you're not a cisgendered man, so mm-hmm. someone who's born male and identifies, identifies as male, yep. um, you know, it can be a little bit alienating to be like like discussing within that community. So we're kind of just going to be discussing about things that we've seen and yeah, seen as women and how having ASD affects us. Yeah. Mm. So do you have any stories that, um, or any Ooh. like people you know who's had stories? Or <laughs> I personally think there's a greater expectation upon women to be more social. Yeah. Be- um, I think, I also think, you know, if a girl is shy or not social in that way, it's not something we always associate, oh, that's autism. I think people are more inclined to go, oh, she's just shy, you know. Yeah, so I'm, I, I remember like going through school, it was sort of like teachers would have the idea that, oh, she's just shy, she's just a bit quiet, you know, there's nothing wrong per se. Yeah. It's all right, you know. I feel like also people um, 
you know, if a, if a dude is shy, they're like, oh my gosh, they're shy. I mean, I feel like people assume that women should be shy, perhaps. Like, yeah. you know, they, they kind of find women who are... Um, Other women who are shy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not so much of a problem. It's not, yeah, exactly. Um, And I guess that sort of a thing. I mean, and also, um, I remember reading something, I think it was from Atwood, and um, basically he... Someone was saying that um, obsessions and stuff are more mm. acceptable for women. So um, a girl being really into horses mm. or really into a music thing or something that's not particularly that's not seen as particularly strange. However, mm. if it's a, if it's a boy doing that, it's kind of like a bit of a flag. Yeah, I guess it depends on what it is. So I mean, a guy with an obsession in cars. True. No, true. no one's going and to notice it's, that. It's also, it's also very, very much like there's a lot of gender stereotyping here, and yeah. it's not necessarily like um, all women or all men who are like this. And it, it's, you know, I guess this is something that often happens, um, you know, and that means that like it definitely gets a little bit more difficult because you've got people who are transgender as well. Um, or people who are non-binary and, you know, it, it kind of, it's not just about men and women, it's also about the people who are outside. Mm. Um, yeah, so I feel like one thing that I've definitely heard is that, like, going back to the concept of gender norms, autistic people just in general mm. are less swayed by these roles, which is kind of a cool thing because it means that like if you're if you're a dude and you're autistic, you don't you don't necessarily feel like you have to prove you're a man. Mm. Just like, well, I am a man, so yeah. And similarly with women, which I think is quite a good thing actually. Mm. That's true. I was thinking, to a degree, because there's this expe- expectation that women will be social. Do you think our society ties feminine femininity? to being social. I think it definitely does. Because when you think of women, you think of, like, how they're connected, very mm. connected to each other, and they have, like, a close group of friends. And this can be really difficult if you're someone, like... I mean, if like, it depends, you know. Like, I'm, I mean, personally, I'm quite social, but I'm not necessarily attached to a group. And mm. I found that really difficult at high school where there was yep. lots of um, girls in friendship groups where they always hung out together. And that was something I wasn't really into. And it meant mm. that, like, you know, in a single-gendered um, setting, it can be really difficult to um, sort of relate to these people because you kind yeah. of expect it to be really social, but, like, oh, actually, I just want to go read a book or I want to yeah. do something else. I don't necessarily want to sit in a, sit on the grass and talk about things every single, like, lunchtime. Yeah, which is a, what is expected of you or even... So I was going to say, you know, like even growing up, like people expect you to be like into fashion and all that stuff. And I know like heaps of girls aren't. Mm. I know I wasn't because, you know, it's not something that I could work out, you know, literally. Mm, Like makeup, you weren't like into it? No. (laughs) I was into makeup, but I'm (laughs) I'm strange like that. I just... Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also like... I think that's quite interesting because, um, yeah, I guess it's very it's very socially constructed these kind of 
expectations expectations and sort of stereotypes about like what 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 are women like what are men like you know like it's expected that they do um yeah yeah like it's expected that women will be social and look good i reckon yeah yeah, so it's kind of interesting how that it's so just it's just like a tangle of just random little things that we associate with genders, which are which are quite like arbitrary. Mm. You know, it doesn't really help anyone. Just like as an aside, um, it's like totally irrelevant. I think it would be really interesting to look at, like, because you know how kids develop ideas of gender when they grow up because mm-hmm. people teach it to them. You know, yep. like we teach young girls to be interested in you know, Barbies and pink and, like, oh, you know, friendship stuff. and stuff and all that crap. Um, you know, like, I'm thinking of, like, My Little Pony or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if gender studies kids would be really interested in this because I remember someone telling me about, like, how we teach kids to be social. Mm-hmm. Do you think... I always wondered if, like, girls with autism wouldn't pick up on as much of that. See, I was someone who had a bit of a democracy with the with the toys I played with. I would play oh, with okay. trucks, and I would also play with Barbie. Mm. And, like, I mean, that's the thing. Well, we're teaching... However, we're teaching kids to play with Barbie, so they take on gender roles. Yeah, I guess, I mean... That would be an interesting topic. Oh, so... It needs to be more ASD feminism. Yes. 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 <laughs> we get the autonomous um, caucus of, like... Autistic feminists, that'll be great. Um, anyway, so Sarah, you're talking a lot about, um, you funding. know, funding and and stuff. And definitely, when I was read, like, listening through that, um, I guess you've got a fairly big. If you're going to look at this through a feminist lens, you got a fairly big gender inequity issue mm. with um, autism diagnosis and yep. um, stuff. So I guess. Um, I, have you felt that like the 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 services provided to you might be lacking, um, or the services around for women specifically, like have you ever felt like yes there are there are areas that there are actually like serious blind spots? I think the services that I have had access to have been very good. The health professionals I've worked with. I think have been very good. They're very good at their job, um, you know, more than adequate. But I think if... Because I'll have to admit that, you know, I come from a family where with where I have parents who have the ability to spend money on these services. Yep. And so they that gives me access to them. If I was someone from a family who didn't have those resources... Or if I as or if I as an adult didn't have those res- financial resources, I think that would really impact how much funding I would have access to through uh, the scheme of rebates yep. at the moment. So you'd also say that there's also an economic gap as well. Yes. So not only a gender gap if girls are being diagnosed later, but possibly an economic one in terms of what parents are able to afford for their kids. Mm. And, I mean, I, I've i definitely heard, like, just on the gender issue, I mean, I've had friends and stuff who've come up to, who've said, like, that they were looking at potentially seeing if they were autistic, mm. but their psychologist or, or psychiatrist have, or doctor have said to them, oh, you're a woman, we don't really test, like, adult women. 
Wow. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, I don't want to kind of say that this is a normal thing because this is only a couple of people who've said it to me. But that is definitely concerning. I mean, obviously that might just be completely just them. Mm. Um, but And I think that yeah. leads to a problem, whereas if you're not testing adult women for ASD or if you're not um, looking out for those issues, then if that person is receiving treatment, say for a depression or anxiety or other issues that may result from ASD, then we're not going to the root cause of what is causing difficulties in a person's life. And I think eventually that makes it harder to treat. Definitely. And you asked me before about whether I think there had been an adequacy in services. Well, I don't think there was once I had a diagnosis for me. It's more about getting the diagnosis? Yeah. And if I, th- I think if I had had that earlier... If I'd had that diagnosis as a kid, not necessarily under six, but just earlier, then that would have made high school so much easier in terms of, I guess, adjusting to a more challenging environment, both mm-hmm. econo- both academically and socially. Yeah, definitely. Um, what was I going to say? Um, I definitely think also, like, for teachers as well, mm. they they probably have a lot of information about autism and stuff but it is probably more for boys so I guess I mean I do feel like there needs to be more research just at the base level um I think a lot of the problem is that we've had we've had um people like Simon Baron Cohen who've said that like his main theory is that um autism is a um extreme male um is the extreme male brain Mm. which is controversial. I probably disagree with that completely. <laughs> um, and I actually probably would go further to say that his theory is actually very, very damaging mm. and is probably the reason why a lot of people aren't getting diagnosed, a, lot, a, a reason why um, a lot of women are actually falling behind the cracks just generally because they don't... Um, because they um, don't know, they know that they're different, but they don't know how they're different. Um, and, you know, that that could mean economic problems, that could mean um, social problems, that could mean, like, even issues of being victims of violence to a more extreme, ex- extreme case. Um, so I'm not a big fan of that. Um, but I definitely feel like we need to kind of look more into women. I know that there's some really interesting research being done um, in the UK um, by people from the National Autistic Society and I'm really happy about that. And I remember read, like listening to something, um, I can't remember the person's name, like Golding was her last name? I don't know. But anyway, um, someone who was from the Lorna Wing Centre was basically saying, you know, autistic women have been overlooked for a really long time and it's actually really depressing and really horrible mm. and I, I was reading this and like yes yes you do the thing please do the thing this is going to be great um so I feel like we should definitely try to encourage more people who are interested in being you know actually researching because you know some of the research into autism is a bit a little bit strange um they should probably be researching more about women rather than more than I, I mean there are some very strange studies like oh someone found out that broccoli oil can 
that came out really, last year. Really, broccoli oil. Yeah, broccoli. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, they were saying broccoli oil can help suppress the um, symptoms of autism, which seemed very, very weird and bizarre. <laughs> and I don't know what drugs these people were on when they were making um, <laughs> making up oil. making up their thesis. Um, and by the way, sin does not condone drugs, um, especially if this means that you study very weird and bizarre things that <laughs> probably are a waste of time. Um, so I kind of feel like that should be a, a actual, like people should actually start to think more about gender and also more about sexuality as well. I mean, I know a lot of people who are autistic who are not straight. So LGBT. Yes. yes. And I also know a lot of people who are like transgender as well. So I've got mm. a couple of friends who are transgender and autistic as well. And um, so, for instance, I I know some people who are transgender and they are concerned about disclosing their diagnosis to people in gender clinics um, because they think that perhaps, and there have been like there are people who have said that this has happened to them, um, that needs to be verified. Mm. But... Um, people don't tend to see that people are more likely to not really think that they're actually transgender because they've got a pre-existing condition. Condition, yeah. Which is kind of not great. Yeah. Because it's sort of completely different things. But... Well, you can have ASD and be transgender or bisexual or gay or lesbian. It doesn't necessarily make it, like, less valid. Mm. Um... And also, like, I guess, um, you know, like, I remember having to write a thing about, um, because the women's, at at my uni, the women's department asked me to do a thing about gender and sexuality and autism, and there was barely any research into um, gender Mm. and, um, like, not just binary genders, but also, like being transgender and there's barely anything about LGBT issues and that's really ridiculous because I can literally off my head name at least 15 people I know personally <laughs> who are LGBT and mm. autistic so it's kind of so if anyone's doing a thesis out there please do pl- that do some research on this do you, there's plenty of room here <laughs> we should do a thing where we actually just be like oh um, we suggest you... thesis ideas for people. <laughs> yes, yes. Great minds don't think alike. Suggest this thesis idea. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so thank you for listening to us, and we'll be back later on in the show. Um, so here's another segment. Hello, Christian again. Uh, so earlier in the episode, I was talking about the character of Game played by Hugh Dancy from Hannibal, and the character of Carrie Matheson, CIA agent in Homeland, played by Claire Danes. But also worth noting that both of those actors have played other neurodiverse characters, Hugh Dancy, Man with Asperger's in Adam, named after the title character, and Claire Danes played Temple Grandin, who, yes, of course, has autism. And worth, worth noting the, different, the stark differences between their performances and just the way in which they were able to in- inhabit these two very different personalities, even even if Will Graham and Adam both have autism, they clearly are on different points of the well, either on different points of the spectrum or just have, have very different personalities within that. And that and that that is the thing to to recognise the, the the fact that there are different personalities within even this condition. So a character is more than just a diagnosis. Obviously, it's there. There also are history. There are there are also political views. There are, there are also styles of conversation, culture that they. they 
they're, they're quite a few things. There are many things wrapped into one. That's, that's a very important thing not to lose sight of. Don't try and fit the whole range of possibilities of one condition into one character. And I can't really think of many good portrayals, like many obvious portrayals of, uh, of bipolar that's, that come to mind, but the character of Carrie Matheson in Homeland is certainly Claire Danes. I mean, she does do Temple Grandin so, so, so carefully. And there is such a stark difference between when she is, she's really in, in control and whether that's taking her medication or is, is, is managing to be on, on top of her mania and, and her depression and, and, and when she's, she's, she's really being set off. And, and, and it really shows how, like, uh, you know, misunderstanding of what she's actually going through and treating it in the wrong way. And sometimes, especially in her case, this is politically motivated. She's, she's um, institutionalized for political reasons and it kind of is a vicious cycle of people assuming that she has certain problems which she doesn't have which then causes her to have those problems it's 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 like people treating you as though you're well they they certainly would think of her as crazy does make you angry which makes you seem crazier and which gives off this this impression that is very very easy to to misuse it's it's quite it's quite controversial in the way that it shows say someone sabotaging her her meds in, in order to get her to suppress what she has discovered and and basically her well her mania is in part portrayed as an asset in terms of her, her focus, her attention to detail, her ability to work furiously on one particular case and come up with all the information and, can, and, and, and find links and present it in a certain way. But if she really is in a bad place, it might not really make sense to anybody else. There are certain triggers that set her off. But also the people she works, it's interesting that she feels she has to hide her condition from the CIA because... You know, obviously that's discrimination, but I, but I, but I guess the fact is people have certain assumptions about mental health issues, about bipolar, manic depression, and she felt as though people would seriously doubt her professionalism if they found out that she was manic depressive. So when some of the people who she is working with find these meds in her house, they say controversially, "Please don't, please tell me I'm not working with a crazy person," which is a perfect sort of illustration of the taboo that surrounds mental health issues and the reasons why she would want to keep this hidden. But she is ultimately, uh, I mean, you're, you're with her every step of the way. You, you really, really do understand that she's a person who deserves to be taken seriously and is doing her best to work through the issues she has. And that cliche with bipolar, there's, there's, you know, there, there's the ups and downs, there's, there's, there's the ways in which she can just make it work for her, and there's, and there's, there's obviously the ways in which she needs help to make it work for her. So I would really recommend watching Homeland for the character of Carrie Matheson. Claire Dades and the writers do an excellent job with it. Thanks very much for listening to me again. I've been Christian. Hi, I'm Sarah, and today I'm with Julia. Hi. And we're going to be discussing uh, whether you disclose your diagnosis at university and, I guess, the benefits and, I guess, if disadvantages maybe of doing that. Um, There was an article um, in The Guardian that sort of spurred this on and this article was sort of suggesting that autistic people um, definitely should... um, disclose a diagnosis at university. Mm. Um, and this also, I guess, we are talking about autism mainly, but this is also something that could definitely be relevant if you've got um, a learning disability or ADHD or pretty much any other neurological condition. Um, I'm a bit of a libertarian on this front, and I'm kind of, I find it kind of awkward and horrible when people say, you should do this. Um, I feel the thing is people who go to university... Like, we're not kids. Autistic adults are not kids. Mm. 
And, you know, I feel like to an extent it's our own prerogative if we actually wish to disclose. However, I do feel like whether you choose to disclose or not, you should always feel safe to disclose. Um, that's the thing that matters the most. And I feel mm. like there are a lot of people saying, oh, I don't know why these autistic people aren't actually telling people about their autism without actually thinking about why they aren't. Mm. And also when they are thinking about why they aren't, they can just be like, oh, yeah, they think that people might be mean to them because of it. Not actually validating the actual quite serious concerns that people may have. What I want to say, I want to talk about the fact that we can give you access to services. So definitely yep. just tell the DLU. Like, yep. it doesn't go further than that. Mm-hmm. They're quite confidential. Yeah. And also, like... It can get you things like extra time and exams. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, but also, I think in terms of telling other people, whether that is your peer group or your friends, I think it has to entirely be up to the individual. Yeah. And who you're with as well. Because... As someone with autism, I don't have an obligation to tell other people. And from my perspective, it is not a wholly consuming aspect of my identity. It is not the only thing that defines me. And I think it is most certainly not the most important thing about me. So I don't see that it's crucial for people that I meet, for people that I'm friends with, to necessarily know that I have autism. Mm. So I and I think so that part of that's for me. I think the other side of it is maybe I am a bit worried about whether how people would react. Yeah. Because I certainly haven't told anyone. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends who just just happen to be like mm. I have a lot of friends who are autistic themselves. I have a lot of friends in the disability community and that just sort of just happened. Mm. So people I tend to speak to who are friends, um, a lot of them are pretty much cool with this stuff. So I'm not necessarily concerned about them. Um, And, like, I I don't really try to... It's just... It's not the first thing I say. Mm. But at the same time, it's not something I'm trying to hide. So it's not like I have a secret life or anything. But at the same time, like... You know, it's a bit like it's a bit like coming out in anything. Like, you know, you don't necessarily want someone who's gay to just constantly be like, "Hi, I'm so and so, and I'm gay." <laughs> you don't want someone to be like, "Hi, I'm so and so, and I'm an Aspie or something." Mm. Um, and that because because then you become that Aspie person or that you know yeah you bec- the person with Aspie that like person um, and no one wants to be thought of like that exactly. I mean, it can be helpful, I imagine, to tell your friends that you have autism if that helps them understand you better and if they can help you as a result. Yeah. That, that would be a good thing. It's, it's more like you just you don't necessarily, you know, it's really just only friends, really. Mm. Only people you actually trust. Mm. You wouldn't say this. Because like, it's quite personal mm, information. Exactly. Um, and like I feel like this can be said about a lot of other issues as well. You might not necessarily want to say who you're dating. You might not necessarily mm. want to say um, that I don't know you immigrated from here. You might, yeah, you know, sure. it's just stuff like that. Um, but I do kind of I feel like it's concerning when I see articles like the one I saw in the Guardian. Which I mean, I feel like it's really important that people should go to their DLU. Or mm. know that they're like often they're at at student unions. Um, yeah, 
there are like disability, disability departments that are really could helpful. We, could we just stress the idea that disability departments can be really good in the mm-hmm. sense that they can give people with disabilities access to further support? Yes. And that can include things such as having a break during your exams, having ex- extra exam time, yep. or having greater access to special consideration, for example. One thing that I can do during exams, and this is really unique to me, but I can use noise-cancelling headphones when mm-hmm. I write my paper out. And so it's a, not just the obvious of getting more time or whatever. It can They can really tailor things to your needs and in that sense be really helpful. Yeah. And I know some universities, I think Monash now does, so they have a mentoring program mm-hmm. and also... We have an autistic collective, which is awesome. Yes. So there's we also are, we aren't anyway yeah. involved in any of this. Exactly. Um, Not at all. Um, so there's there is help and there is support out there. Yeah. So diagnosing in that. Sorry, disclosing your diagnosis I in feel that like sense. And I feel like it's kind of can safer. Give you access to it, and I feel things. like it's kind of safer, yeah. like because you know, like stuff like an autistic collective or a disability collective, even. Mm. Um, those are like designated safe spaces for people who are autistic, and there are similar ones for women, and there are similar mm. ones for LGBT people. So you know, much like someone who might not be openly about, um, open about the fact that they're LGBT, they can go to an LGBT space at uni and be very, very open about it. Um, Similarly, you might not necessarily be open about, you know, being neurodiverse or disabled or whatever, but if you're in a space where it's literally most of the people there or if not all the people there are neurodiverse or disabled or whatever, you know, you're probably a little bit more comfortable. Mm. Um, And it's kind of good to have, like, that. And I think it's really helpful to have friends... Um, obviously, you don't want to just have all your friends being autistic, <laughs> but like it's good to meet other people who yeah. have similar experiences and to you. And to know you're not the only one out there who has this experience. It's not, you know, to to know that other people share the same experiences with you. You're not alone in this, and you're sort of in it together. If yeah. I can say that, yeah, definitely. Yep. And it's it's cool. Like, I mean, I feel like even with shows like Great Minds Don't Think Like sort of um, works in this way. Um, there are people at Zin who I know who are also on the spectrum, and it's kind of like we all know each other and we're all friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not necessarily like the group in the corner who are like they're the Aspies. Go say hi to them or whatever. Um, you know, we're still kind of very integrated and we do other things outside of Great Minds, which is great. Mm. Um, but I do find it really concerning when people are saying you must do this, and that's the thing that I found found really concerning. What would you What would you say about disclosing to say faculty members or say your lecturers? It depends on your situation. It really, yeah. really does. So, for instance, say if you said, because um, like this happened to me, but I didn't actually talk to anyone about this. But there was one time when they just blasted out a video. Um, and it was so loud in my media, in my media lecture. Um, now, if that was that, thankfully only happened once. But say if you're in a situation where you get lots of noisy stuff, and this is something that might be annoying to you or very like actually stops you from learning. Mm. Perhaps saying hi, I've got a diagnosed condition and I've got a problem with noise. Um, can you like just? turn down the volume like stuff like that could make sense and you might not necessarily have to say what you have but you could just say hi I'm sensitive to sound you don't necessarily just say Mm. I'm autistic or whatever um but you could say look it's important that we play videos but can you just turn down the volume 
Yeah, which is fine. I feel like, you know, there are ways to ask for needs without actually being like, and I have this thing. Um, you could even just say, hey, that was really loud. Can you, Can you please do this? We're not, not all deaf. We're not all deaf. Yeah. <laughs> We're not all deaf lecturers. Yeah. Um, so, like, we could, like, there's always ways you can talk about things. Um, mm. But I guess it depends. Ultimately, it depends on your personal, personal things. And I feel like that's the thing that I find really annoying is that sometimes there are articles saying, and we spoke to this random person who has autism, and he's basically told every single person he knows about it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I just tell everyone on the street that I'm autistic. That's great. And it's kind of like, okay, that's great for him, and I'm sure he loves his life, but that's not everyone. Yeah, not for. it's not always for everyone, no. Um... So I guess it's important also if you're going to write articles about why people with autism or whatever um, should should disclose it to anyone, you know, be aware that we're all individuals and we have different... Um, and we're more than yeah. just a label. Yeah. There's more things about us and we're... Exactly. A diverse com- community. We're a very diverse community. Very, very diverse. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I guess uh, if we're going to go and wrap this up, um, you know, it's it's important to. I feel like it's important for people who are who are autistic or neurodiverse or disabled to remember that you are actually in control of this. It's not actually other people's, um, other people's like responsibility to tell you what to do they not they aren't supposed to tell you mm. what to do another thing i'd also say is that if people are disclosing on your behalf and you know if you're an adult especially but also if you're if you're nine if you're like a teenager that's something that's not good mm. and um because it's your diagnosis and it's your identity and i think it should be up to the individual to have control over how yep. much information people know about them. You need to have autonomy over this stuff. And if mm. people are, and look, even if it's your parents, just say to them, no, actually, this is something I don't feel comfortable with. Um, be open about this and also be like, this is my thing. It's not your thing. Um, and that that might be a bit difficult, but that's something that you need to know is that this is, this is your prerogative. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for listening to us. So we're just going to, that's all we have time for today. We'll be releasing another um, another podcast in two weeks' time. Um, in the meantime, please um, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We have lots of cool stuff that we share. Um, Twitter is at GMDTA Media and um, Facebook is www.facebook forward slash Great Minds on Sin. Um, we also have a blog and we're accepting submissions. So... We have lots of information about that on our Facebook page, so that's sort of where all the information is. Um, You're with Julia and Sarah. And, yeah, thank you for listening. Mm